those last two songs I love, I love the old hymns. They really proclaim Christ Amen. and the glory of Christ. Amen. And they did stand the test of time. And that's why we still sing them today because it's still relevant today. Just like the Word of God is still relevant today. Even though the Word of God is a thousands of years old, it's still relevant today. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to John 15. This is part 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. Two weeks ago I spoke. It was part 1. Today we're going to look at part 2. In our text today, Jesus is continuing to teach and encourage His disciples. He's at the point right before His crucifixion. And He's mentoring His own. Basically, the, the nation of Israel rejected Christ. We see that up until chapter 13. And from chapter 13 to the end, Christ is mentoring and teaching and encouraging his own. He wants them and us, in us, because this wasn't just for them, this is for us. That's why it was written down. He wants them and us to understand the right relationship with him. So he uses a metaphor of vine and branches. He is the true vine. And they are the branches. And as branches, they had the privilege of sharing his very life. And the responsibility of abiding in him. And because they were abiding in him, Jesus gave them some glorious promises. Not so for those who attached themselves to Jesus but were not abiding in him. They are removed, as we'll see, and thrown into the fire and burned. But let us be encouraged from this sec- section of scripture to continue to draw the very life of Christ into our hearts as we abide in him. John 15 verses 1 through 11. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit he prunes. That it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him. He it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, open our hearts to your word, that we may see Jesus Christ. That we may be formed into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. 
In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. I read this story from Moody Publishes from an unknown writer. And he writes this. A lot of people talk about how hot it is in Texas. The heat doesn't really bother me, though because everything is air-conditioned in Texas. Your car is air-conditioned. Your house is air-conditioned. Every building you go in is air-conditioned. But sometimes you have to be under the sun. And while you're in it, it's hot. And most people here just don't hang out in the sun. Actually, I'm a hot-weathered person. The hotter it is, the nicer it is for me. Where some people like hot air conditioning's blasting in their cars, I prefer to roll down the windows. I'd rather have hot air than cold air conditioning. It's just my particular temperament. And I know something is wrong with me, but that's just the way it is. I don't mind hanging out in the sun. That said, most people I know don't want to hang out in the sun. They just want to pass through the sun. What a lot of people want to do with the S-U-N sun, they want to do with the S-O-N sun. They just want to pass through. When you hang out in the sun, <clears throat> you're going to sweat. Why? Because you can't be under that much power and not feel its effect on you. If you hang under the S-O-N, you're also going to sweat. You're going to sweat his commandments. You're going to sweat pleasing him. You're going to sweat his word because you can't hang out in his presence without him rubbing off on you. The way you know he's rubbing off on you is that you begin to walk as he walks. You begin to pick up some of his habits. You begin to pick up some of his direction. You begin to pick up some of his influence. We need to hang out with the son. We need to abide in Christ. The only way to bear fruit. And my proposition is the same as the last time because it's the same sermon. It's just part two. How do we bear fruit and glorify God? Abide in Christ. Three points. We looked at the first point two weeks ago. Christ is the only source of spiritual fruit for those abiding in him. And the last two points we'll be looking at tonight is Christ is a consuming fire for those who are not abiding in him. And number three, Christ's life flows into us as we abide in him with glorious promises. When I spoke the last time, we looked at point one. Christ is the only source of spiritual fruit for those abiding in him, which basically covered verses one through five. For those of you who are not here, I would recommend you to listen to part one on our website to get the full message. In the first part, we saw that Jesus is the true vine. Israel, in the Old Testament, was supposed to be a fruit-bearing vine, but only produced sour grapes, wild grapes. There was supposed to be a light and a blessing to the world, good fruit, but failed miserably, sour grapes, bad fruit, wild grapes. But Jesus appears and says, I am the true vine. Jesus is now the true Israel of God. He is that true, healthy, fruit-bearing vine where Israel failed. 
And all that abide in him, every Christian from the time of Jesus till now, that abide in him, bear healthy fruit. When we remain in his love, when we are obedient to him, when we accept the Father's pruning process in our lives, which can be painful, then we bear fruit and more fruit. And this happens by God's grace only through faith. Apart from abiding in Christ, we cannot bear spiritual fruit. God expects fruit-bearing Christians. And only those abiding in Christ bear fruit. And the fruit God expects is inequality fruit, like the fruit of the Spirit. As Paul told the Galatians, love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are inequality fruit, which produces quality Christian character. That's what God's after. Which is then manifested outwardly. When we abide in Christ, we bear fruit, which starts inwardly and then works itself outwardly. It's a work of God by his Holy Spirit, of those who abide in Christ by faith. If we possess these inner attitudes, these inequalities, then the fruit of active good works will follow, like soul winning, praise offered to God, sacrificial love and meeting the needs of others, holy and righteous living. But it starts inwardly with the love, joy, peace, etc. I said this last week and I'm going to say it again. It is impossible to be a fruitless Christian. He saved us to be fruitful, productive. However, the complete opposite true of professing Christians who is not a Christian, they bear no fruit, proving that they are false believers, which brings us to our second point. Christ is a consuming fire for those who are not abiding in him. Verse 6 again. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If we are fruitless and proclaim Christ, then we are those branches that God the Father cuts off and are thrown away and burned. Simply put, a fruitless professing Christian is a false Christian. They may have the appearance of a real Christian... They were never born again by the imperishable seed implanted by the Holy Spirit. They may have went to an altar call. They may have said the sinner's prayer. That doesn't make them a Christian. All through scripture, God expects fruit. If a person like Israel doesn't have fruit, they are not the real deal. So they are cut off and thrown away and burned. You see, talk is very cheap in God's economy. Remember when Jesus in Matthew 15, 8 was quoting the prophet Isaiah and he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts is far from me. Talk is cheap. God knows those who are his. We may fool the world. We may fool our husband or wives. We may fool our children. We may fool our neighbors, relatives, friends. We may fool the church. We may even fool ourselves. But we can never fool God. He knows those who belong to him. Are we fruit-bearing Christians? That's the bottom line. 
Fruit proves if we really belong to God. Fruit proves we are genuine believers who have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. Fruit proves we are part of the new covenant church of Jesus Christ. It's about fruit, isn't it? It's God's primary creative and redemptive purpose. As you see all the way from the beginning, from Genesis. Chapter 1, verse 12, uh, 11 and 12, verse 22 and 28 in chapter 1. Every living thing God created from vegetation to man was to be fruitful. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to look at verses 1 through 9. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun arose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain. And some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And then the same chapter, starting with verse 18 to 24, Jesus explains this parable. Starting with verse 18. Hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word, understands it. Here's the key. This is key. He indeed bears fruit and yields. In one case, a hundredfold, in another, sixty, and in another, thirty. So in a nutshell... Four different types of hearts represented by four different types of soil. That's four different reactions to the word of God. That's right. When the word is preached, there can be four different reactions. The first is the person who hears the gospel but rejects it immediately. They don't want anything to do with Christ, anything to do with his gospel. They don't understand it and are hard-hearted. Satan snatches the word from them. No fruit. The second is the person who hears the gospel and immediately says, this is wonderful, and says the sinner's prayer or responds to an altar call. They go to church and they go to Bible study and prayer meetings and look like bona fide Christians. However, when the test comes through trials, suffering, or persecution because of the word, they fall away. They're gone. They're apostate. Again, no fruit. And the third person is the one who hears the gospel, but they are preoccupied with the cares of this world or the deception of riches. 
Their lives are built on their jobs, their families, hobbies, how to make money, the stock market, this, that. By the way, there is nothing inherently wrong with these things. But all they think about everything, every day, is everything but God, Christ, and His gospel. They have weedy and thorny hearts. The cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word. Again, no fruit. If you have a vegetable garden and you don't pull out the weeds surrounding the vegetable plant, don't expect fruit or expect very small fruit. If the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches are weeds in your heart, don't expect fruit. Confess it to God and by His grace, remove those weeds. The fourth is the person who hears the gospel and understands it. This is the heart who was prepared by the Holy Spirit. Before salvation, this person was no better off than the other three. But when the Holy Spirit gave them a new heart, they understood the gospel and received it with joy and gladness. And here's the difference as opposed to the other three. The second half of verse 23. He indeed bears fruit. And yields, in one case, a hundredfold, in another, sixty, and in another, thirty. The difference between that one and the other three? Fruit. The genuine Christian bears fruit. And I think, depending on the level of obedient commitment to their Savior, to Jesus Christ, determines how fruitful they will be. Back in our text, John 15, 6, Jesus continues the contrast that if a person is claiming Christ as their Savior, but not abiding in Him, he is not bearing fruit. God the Father, the vine dresser, throws that person away. They are cut off. They are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. Again, God is and always was concerned about fruit. Turn with me to Ezekiel. Chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. And the word of the Lord came to me. This is the prophet Ezekiel. Son of man, how does the wood of vine surpass any wood? The vine branch that is among the trees of the forest. If wood taken from it, is wood taken from it? To make anything? Do people take a peg from it to hang any vessel on it? Behold, it is given to the fire for fuel. When the fire has consumed both ends of it and the middle of it is charred, is it useful for anything? Behold, when it was whole, it was used for nothing. How much less when the fire has consumed it and it is charred? Can it ever be used for anything? Therefore, thus says the Lord... Like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so have I given the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will set my face against them. Though they escape from the fire, the fire shall yet consume them. And you will know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. And I will make the land desolate, because they have acted faithlessly, declares the Lord God. So Ezekiel prophesied that the people of Jerusalem were useless because of the sin of idolatry and their worship of pagan idols. And God was going to destroy it. She was set apart, Israel, from God, or by God, from the other nations to bear fruit and to be a beacon of light to those other nations. But she failed to bear fruit. 
She no longer served any purpose, but was useless. And like a useless vine, was going to be burnt, which symbolized Jerusalem's judgment, which we know happened. God's true people throughout redemptive, redemptive history produced fruit. It's no different today for the people of God. And it's no different today for the unfruitful mere professors of Christ. Judgment will come. The end of unfruitful branches is hell. Jesus taught parables concerning, concerning true and false believers. And at the judgment, they will be sorted out. The righteous from the unrighteous. The abiding fruitful branches from the non-abiding fruitful branches. Let's go back to Matthew 13, verses 47 to verse 50. Again, the kingdom is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but, the, but threw away the bad. So will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the, uh, from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, God in one sense does not delight in the destruction of the wicked. And neither should we. But in another sense, he will never violate his holy and righteous justice. Sin must be punished. And if we're not in Christ, we must be judged. God is love. But he's also a consuming fire. As Hebrews 12.29 says, We have a big tree in front of our house. And a few small trees in the backyard. And every now and then, dead branches fall off these trees. Uh, some of them I throw away. Some of them I keep. The ones I throw away when the sanitation truck comes. They take the dead branches onto the truck and dispose of them. They probably burn them. And the ones I keep, I use for the barbecue. I put some of the dead branches and the twigs under the charcoal and light, and light it so the coals can catch up. And like quicker. These branches are dead and useless. Well you might think. Well how can you say useless John. When you're using them for your barbecue. I use them for my advantage. Not theirs. All they're going to do is burn. So when a person. Who is a false believer. And not abiding in Christ. And they die. Or Christ returns. It is no advantage for the false believer. But to God's advantage. Because he will still be glorified. In the punishment of the wicked. Now this is not an easy message. And I know most of the. Church in America doesn't like to hear messages like this. But when you come across a text like this. You have to be faithful to the text. Amen. When a person who is a false believer. And is not abiding in Christ. And they die. It is to Christ's advantage. Jonathan Edwards. He was a great Puritan. Great American Puritan. And he said this. And I, anything Jonathan Edwards says. I listen to. He said. Men who bring forth no fruit to God. Yet in suffering destruction may be useful. Although they are. Although they be not useful actively or by anything which they do, yet they may be useful in what they may suffer, just as a barren tree, which is no way useful standing in the vineyard, yet may be good fuel and be very useful in fire. Wow. 
in the article from Dr. James Hamilton, How Does Hell Glorify God? He says this, It shows that He keeps His word. It shows His infinite worth lasting forever. It demonstrates His power to subdue all who rebel against Him. It shows how unspeakably merciful He is to those who trust Him. It upholds the reality of love by visiting justice against those who reject God, who is love. It vindicates all who suffer to hear or proclaim the truth of God's word. And it shows the enormity of what Jesus accomplished when he died to save all who would trust in him from hell they deserved. If there were no hell, there would be no need for the cross. Dr. John Piper says this, God glorifies his wrath in condemning those who won't have him as their satisfaction. He hands them over to their sin and he punishes them in hell. And the glory of his justice shines very brightly. His wrath will be glorified and his power will be glorified. And their failure to be satisfied in him will will produce that kind of glorification. Proverbs 16.4 says this. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. And there are other scriptures where we understand that God is glorified even when the wicked are punished. Revelation 19, Psalm 76, Romans 9. Even though you and I cannot stomach the thought of anyone spending eternity in hell, the Bible says one day we will rejoice in God's judgment. Because we will see his holiness and his righteousness much clearer. Revelation 6, verses 9 and 10. This is John on the island of Patmos when he was writing Revelation. He said, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain from, for the word of God. And for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true. Now listen. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? One commentator says this about that verse. This is not a personal vendetta on their part. They are not trying to tell God what to do or when to do it. They are asking him the question because they have a holy desire to see Satan and Antichrist destroyed. Iniquity defeated, the wicked judged, and Jesus Christ reigning in glory on earth. Listen, we're not there yet. And we have a hard time with this. But by faith we believe it. God will be glorified even in the death of the wicked. He doesn't delight in it. He doesn't doesn't get joy out of it. But he will be glorified. The false believers will face judgment. And this should bring tears to our eyes. And keep us praying for the lost. D.L. Moody The great American evangelist said, I cannot preach hell unless I preach it with tears. However, the branches that abide in Christ have a different destiny. Point three. Christ's life flows into us as we abide in him with glorious promises. Verse 7 through 11. If you abide in my words... Or if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. 
If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be full. You see, when we abide in Christ, His life flows into us. And there are great and glorious promises. The first glorious promise, He answers our prayers. Verse 7, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. And it will be done for you. But notice the key word is abide in my word. One of the ways we abide in Christ is Christ's word abides in us. We can be assured of answered prayer when we abide in Christ and his word abides in our hearts. And I'll repeat from part one what Dr. Sinclair Ferguson said. In a nutshell, abiding in Christ means allowing his word to fill our minds, direct our wills, and transform our affections. In other words, our relationship to Christ is intimately connected to what we do with our Bibles. Then, of course, as Christ's words dwell in us and the Spirit fills us, we will begin to pray in a way consistent with the will of God and discover the truth of our Lord's often misapplied promise. You will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. And we have many misapplied um, um, prayers because they misinterpret this verse. When we abide in Christ and his words abide in our hearts, we will live close to Christ as we can. How do we know if his word is abiding in our hearts? We love his word. We honor his word. We meditate on his word. We learn his word. We study his word. We memorize his word as best as we can. We love to obey his word. Our delight is in his word. Psalm 34, verse 7. Very well-known passage of scripture. Delight yourself in the Lord. And what? He will give you the desires of your heart. When you... Abide in Christ. When his word abides in you, you are delighting in him. And he's going to give you the desires of your heart. This is not about obeying the Bible externally. Although it starts there. This is about growing in Christ's teaching. In our understanding. And life's practice which results in bearing fruit in our lives. This is about Christ's word controlling the believer's life. When this happens, as Dr. Gerald Borchardt says, praying ceases to be selfish asking and becomes aligned with the will and purpose of God in Christ. Do you want answered prayers? Let the word of Christ control your heart. Let the word of Christ richly dwell in you. The second and glorious promise for those who abide in Christ is we bear fruit and we glorify God. Verse 8, by this my Father is glorified, that you what? Bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. When we bear fruit, which we already talked about, when the inner attitudes, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, so on and so forth, when these are exhibited in our lives and flow out of us in evangelism and giving and holy living and righteousness, we glorify God. The greatest thing you and I can do, more than anything, is to glorify God. The Westminster Confession of Faith. How many of you have ever heard the Westminster Confession of Faith? 
Okay, well that is a standard of doctrine for the Church of Scotland and many Presbyterian churches and some Baptist churches throughout the world. It's been around a long time. The Westminster Confession of Faith is considered by many to be the best statement of systematic theology ever framed by the Christian church. It consists of a, a larger catechism and the Westminster Shorter Catechism. The Shorter Catechism contains 107 questions and answers concerning different doctrines of scriptures. This is the way they used to teach the people back then. And the very first question of the Shorter Catechism is this. What is the chief end of man? And the answer, and they give scriptures to go along with it. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And that's what you and I were ultimately created for, to glorify God. Not evangelism, although evangelism does glorify God. Not being good. Not anything but to glorify God. But there are things in our lives that do glorify God. But we can't glorify God without abiding in Christ. Once again... Abiding in Christ means we're obedient to Him. We rest our lives in the love of Christ. We submit to the pruning by God in our lives. And our abiding in Him depends on His grace. In short, we are in union with Christ. Abiding in Christ equals fruit. Fruit equals glorifying God. In Matthew 5.16, Jesus said, let your light shine before others. So what? They may see your good works. You could say that's fruit. And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let me quickly read four scriptures that speak of glorifying God. 1 Corinthians 10.31. Paul said to the Corinthian church, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. You mean I could actually eat and drink to the glory of God? Yeah. If you receive it with thanksgiving... And you put it in its proper place. Yeah, you glorify God. Psalm 115.1. Not to us, O Lord. Not to us. But to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. And then Revelation 4.11. Worthy are you, O Lord and God. To receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. And then Romans 1136, for of him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever. Amen. When we read the Bible, in John chapter 13, we see that God is glorified through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. Now we have the other truth, that God is also glorified in the work of believers who abide in his son. So God is glorified through the work of his son, of redemption, but God is also glorified in us as we bear fruit. And when we bear fruit and glorify God, it proves that we genuinely are his disciples. If you want to know if you're a genuine, you know, listen, it's okay, I said this the last time, it's okay to do some fruit inspection. Do I have fruit? Am I bearing fruit? Paul says that, matter of fact, in Corinthians. He told him, he said, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Now that's not to inject doubt, we're always going to doubt our salvation. That's not the point. The point is, are we bearing fruit? Are we sure we're his disciples? If you're bearing fruit, you are his disciple. The third and glorious promise for those who abide in Christ is we experience Christ's love. 
verse 9 and 10 of chapter 15. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Now, this is not a condition. As if Jesus was saying, well, if you love me, I mean, I'll love you as long as you keep my commandments. No, he's not saying that. Dr. Ossie Sproul says, his love for us is not a result of our obedience. Rather, our obedience is the result of our love for him. Remember, Sproul goes on to say, he told the disciples in John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, what? You will keep my commandments. Here he deepening that saying, because I love you and have chosen you out of the world and brought you to myself, you will be fruitful, you will be obedient. See, obedience is a result of Christ in us. We don't try to be obedient to bear fruit or to get God's favor. We bear fruit and we are obedient and we love Christ because of him in us. Religion puts the cart before the horse. What does religion say? I'll do good to get God's favor. And Christ says, no, or God the Father says, no, I gave you my son because you can't do it. Listen, only you and I can love him because he first loved us, as 1 John tells us. Our love for Jesus is a response from our hearts filled with gratitude for what he has done for us. And now because our love and gratitude for him, we obey him and experience God's blessing. Now here's the ultimate mind-blowing thought. The way the Father loves Christ is the same way Christ loves you. And the Father himself loves us the way he loves Jesus. Now, I I remember when I first heard that, when I first learned that, I almost couldn't get myself to say it for fear of blasphemy. God loves me as much as Jesus? I mean, how can that be? God the Father loves me as much as... Yeah, he does. Listen, 1 John 4.10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And then you see in John 16, verse 27. For the father, he's talking, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He says, for the father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. The father loves us as much as his own beloved son. What amazing promises that are given to those who abide in Christ. He answers our prayers. We bear fruit and glorify God. We experience Christ's love. And by the way, just let me interject this. God is not obligated to answer the prayers of the unbelieving world. He might, because of his benevolence, or because of his divine purposes, but he is obligated, when we abide in Christ, to answer our prayers. Isn't that great? That's great. And fourth, we have unspeakable joy. Verse 11. Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Why did Jesus speak these things to his disciples? That his joy may be in them. Why did the Holy Spirit write these things down in the Bible? So the generations of followers of Christ could also have his joy in them. Jesus Christ 
wants his joy to fill and control the believer's heart who abide in him. In Jesus' high priestly prayer, which we didn't get up to yet, verse 17, will probably be there another three years, I don't know. But in his high priestly prayer to the Father right before his death, Jesus said in chapter 17, verse 13, he says, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. By the way, this is not Jesus Christ creating joy in you. He's not creating joy in you. He's giving you His joy. Joy is experienced in the obedient believer. When David sinned, he understood the loss of joy in his disobedience. Because he violated the Lord's command not to commit adultery and and killing. He said in the well-known psalm, Restore to me what? The joy of your salvation. Not of my salvation, of your salvation. The joy of your salvation. It has been said, the most miserable person in the world is the disobedient Christian. Now, of course, if the person is habitual, dis, habitually disobedient, or he or she is, could not be a genuine Christian, you can't be continually disobedient, habitually, willfully, without repentance, and, and, and be a genuine Christian. That's just foreign to the scriptures. But for those of us who fall into a time of disobedience, which we all do, we are miserable. Are we? When we disobey the one who loved us and saved us, and we fall into that little time of whatever it is, rebellion or disobedience, we're miserable. I don't know about you, but I'm miserable. Like David, we feel the pain and displeasure of our Lord who, was, who we are offending. And we undergo discipline. And when we repent and are restored back to, the, to obedience and fellowship, we again experience Christ's joy in our hearts. And I love that. And nothing can take that joy away, even when we're suffering or being persecuted. I love when I read The Voice of the Martyr magazine. I, I wish the whole church would get into that. That Voice of the Martyr magazine. It tells you the persecution that's going overseas. That how Christians are suffering for their faith. And yet, nothing can steal their joy. They are so joyful. You read the articles and you, and you see the joy beaming from their hearts. Our joy from Christ doesn't make logical sense at times. It surpasses our understanding. But it's there and no one can take it from us because Christ gave it to us. Not so with the world of unbelievers. Their joy, which is being happy, is based on something happening. If the stock market is good, I'm happy. If I'm healthy... I'm happy. If my family is well, no one's sick, I'm happy. But when we abide in Christ and share in His obedience, we share His joy as well, no matter what's going on. No matter what's going on. We have the joy in answered prayers. We have joy because we bear fruit and glorify God. We have joy because the love of Christ abides in our hearts. Joy is a byproduct of Christ in our hearts. Donald Gray Barnhouse, one of the great, great pastors of, just died not, not too many years ago. He was the pastor of 10 Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. Tells this story. An experience of this child of God may be a blessing to many. She wrote, 
One very rainy night, a little over a year ago, I locked my store and started home. There was a pouring, drenching, chilling rain and a high wind. An umbrella was useless. The cars were late, and I waited on the corner for three quarters of an hour. I was soaked to the skin and chilled to the bone. Then I had to ride in two cold cars. When I reached home, there was no dry clothing laid out for me. There was no warm supper. The fire, the fires were banked, and the house was cold. Now the Lord has been good to me. He has blessed me with a happy disposition. The blue devils do not trouble me often. But when they were there that night, I thought, I will feed my kitten. I will not bother with any supper. I will go right to bed and cry it out. I began to remove my soaked clothing as I did. The Lord brought these words to my mind. There is never a day so dreary. There is never a night so long. But the soul that is trusting Jesus will somewhere, somehow find a song. Only those who abide in Christ, trust in the Savior, will find joy in the night. They'll find that song in the night. Let me conclude here. Are you abiding in Christ? If you are, you have some really grand promises from God Himself. And I want to encourage you. You're going to bear fruit. And you are bearing fruit. You're going to exhibit quality Christian character. You're going to have good works that others will see and give glory to God the Father. God is even going to prune you so you will bear even more good fruit. You will have your prayers answered. You're going to experience and treasure the deep, deep love of Christ. And for an added bonus, no matter what you're going through, you're going to have experience, joy-filled, inexpressible joy filled with glory. Listen, we're not going to experience all this to the fullest on this side of heaven. But let's grow in this as we get closer and closer to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you're not abiding in Christ, the warning is simple. And I plead with you, repent and trust in Christ with all your heart. He took the whole penalty of your sin and nailed it to the cross. He died in your place, and on the third day, on the first glorious Easter Sunday, He rose again so you would be justified. Trust Him now, not tomorrow, for we know tomorrow may not come. Today is the day of salvation. Abide in Christ. And I'll close with the words of this glorious hymn by Henry Francis Light. Abide with me, fast falls the eventide. The darkness deepens. Lord, with me abide. When other helpers fail and comfort flees, help of the helpless, oh, abide with me. Swift to its close ebbs, outlives little day, earth's joy grows dim, its glory passes away, change and decay in all, in all around I see. Oh, Lord, who changes not, abide with me. I need your presence every passing hour. What but your grace can foil the tempter's power? Who like yourself my, my guide and my strength can be? Though cloud and sunshine, or through cloud and sunshine, oh, abide with me. I fear no foe with you at hand to bless. Through ills have weighed and tears their bitterness. Where there is death sting, where, where grave your victory, I still triumph if you abide with me. 
Hold now your word before my closing eyes. Shine through the gloom and point to me the skies. Heaven's mornings breaks and earth's vain shadows flee. In life, in death, O Lord, abide with me. Let's pray. Father, help us to truly abide in your son Jesus Christ. And as we do, you will hear our prayers. We will bear good fruit. Fruit that will last. We will bask in your love, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We will have this joy that is wonderful. And the greatest is that you will be glorified. Yes, Father God, you will glorify, be glorified. Our ultimate goal, God, is to bring you glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.